Welcome to the Poker Corrales. What goes into a good memoir? Well, first, you need a compelling story. One must also have a talent to write creative nonfiction. Resisting the temptation to take the reader into the weeds of where the story originated, while simultaneously telling a story that keeps one interested. If that is the criteria for a good memoir, then award-winning CNN journalist John Blake has exceeded the standard in his new book, More Than I Imagined, What a Black Man Discovered About the White Mother He Never Knew. John Blake, welcome to The Public Morality. Thank you for having me. I want to begin uh, with the title. If you share with our listeners its origins and what went into that title. Well, the title has a, a kind of double meaning. It's called More Than I Imagine. And part of it is uh, trying to describe the emotions that I felt when I finally met my mom. The book is re- built around uh, me trying to discover what happened to my mom. Some context might be helpful. Uh, I was born in the mid-60s to an interracial couple, a white mother and a black father. And I was born when interracial marriage was illegal in much of the country. And my mom disappeared from my life not long after I I was born. There was no explanation why she disappeared. No one told me where she went. Um, I didn't know what she looked like, the sound of her voice. So I grew up with this mystery. And the only thing I knew about her or her family was this. They told me that your mother's name is Shirley, she's white, and her family hates Black people. So I grew up with this, uh, like this void in my life. And so when I finally met her, this unexpectedly at 17, what I saw, what I experienced was so much more than I imagined. And then what I subsequently experienced getting to know her and this white side of my family that wanted nothing to do with me because my father was Black, was also very surprising. And the second meaning to it is, uh, it's a scripture from the New Testament that I like that says God is is able to do immeasurably more than we ask or even imagine. And I thought that was appropriate too, because as I got to know my mother and her family, uh, these these people that I thought were just one-dimensional racist were so much more complex and we were able to become family, something I never expected. So it was a, it was a journey of faith as well. Uh, so that's kind of the double meaning of the title. Hmm. Um, tell us about your father. You, you referred to him in that first chapter as a walking National Geographic. Say more about that, if you would. So my father, I call him a walk, walking National Geographic because like the magazine, he had been to pretty much every country in the world. He was a merchant marine. These were sailors who uh, just sailed around the the globe. And he was a Black man born during the Great Depression who grew up in a Jim Crow America. But in a way, he lived very differently than most Black men of his era. And because he traveled, because he was a National Geographic, uh, walking National Geographic, uh, he was treated differently when he was overseas. He wasn't a Black man. He was an American citizen and he was treated with a a level of respect that he didn't get in the States. And since he spent most of his time overseas, he was accustomed to living with a a certain type of boldness and freedom. And so that and gave him that type of confidence and courage to court and date my mom in the mid 60s 
when a black man could easily have gotten killed for walking openly in public with a white woman, but he did it anyway because he had been accustomed to living with that freedom on the deck of a merchant marine ship. I mean, you, you write that, I mean, he just, they were working in the same facility, right? And he just saw her and asked her out. I mean, that's that's pretty bold given uh, the, the time frame that you outlined. It was. It was uh, literally taking your, his life in his hand. They both, uh, he, he met her and my mom in a hospital, which would in some ways prove very prophetic. Uh, it's for kind of a foreshadowing of their relationship. But he would have little odd jobs when he wasn't overseas. And he took an odd job working in a hospital and he saw her at lunch and he just asked out for a date. And what was even more amazing was that she said, yes, my mom was from this very racist Irish Catholic working class family in Baltimore. These were people who freely used the N-word, who thought that white and black people shouldn't be kept apart. And But she said yes. So they were both very much uh, ahead of their time. So as you write about your father, I, I sense a, uh, your retrospective glance um, that articulated a, a, a complicated Relationship and, and as as with most of us, we see our parents different when than when we're children as as when we as when we become adults. And so he was your hero, but then you sort of look at him and you you were able to articulate the that it was more complicated than you realized. Was that was that a a literal goal you were trying to achieve in writing this piece? Well, well, yes, because as you said, uh, I think most every child's relationship with a with a parent becomes more complicated as they get older and they begin to understand and see their parent more clearly. And that was, uh, that was the case with my father. Um, I, I just, one of the things that I began to appreciate as I got older is that he seemed to be free of a lot of the bitterness and hatred toward white people that I saw in a lot of black people. And I'm not saying that, a lot of the bitterness black people had and still have toward white people was not justified because my father experienced some serious raw racism like a lot of black folks. But I never heard him use a racial slur to describe white people. I never heard him say all white people like that. He, and and that, that really impressed me as I got older. And um, he could have, for example, really torn down my mother's family because they really, uh, they really treated him awfully. For example, when my father first tried to date my mom, her father uh, physically assaulted him, called him the N-word and you know, had him arrested by the police, but my father didn't seem to really let that stuff get to him. So that's what I appreciated and I saw in him as I got older that stood out more to me, something and that was something I couldn't really see when I was younger. And I, and I just as, a, as an aside, I, I couldn't help but get a chuckle out of this. But I would imagine that Nat King Cole's song, L-O-V-E, Love, still takes you back to your childhood in Baltimore. <laughs> I did, yeah. Good question because, uh, you know, I grew up in this neighborhood that on the outside where you wouldn't have uh, a lot of reason to sing songs and to be happy. So the neighborhood I grew up in West Baltimore is pretty infamous. It served as a setting for the HBO, HBO series, The Wire. It was the also the epicenter for the 2015 Freddie Gray protest slash rebellion slash riot, whatever you want to call it. So it was this place is known for it's like violence and poverty. 
And it's an all black neighborhood and there's tremendous hostility toward white people. So which was very strange for me to grow up there with a white mom. And one of the things I said is uh, I didn't want people to know that my mom was white because nobody liked white people. So I was this closeted biracial person there. But even amidst all that, that struggle, uh, my father was somebody who had a great sense of humor and he loved to spend time with us. And one of his favorite pastimes was to uh, just get us together and put on a Nat King Cole record and teach us the words. And he loved Nat King Cole. He had, we had Nat King Cole posters and albums everywhere. And I can still remember the words to Nat King Cole songs that he sang with us when we were kids. And when I say us, I'm including my younger brother, Patrick. Hmm. So as you write, um, there were two questions that you could not answer. Mm -hmm. uh, where is my mother? And what is my place in the world? Say more, particularly about that latter one, where's my place in the world? Say more about those, though, if you would. So, yeah, my place in the world, it felt like I came into the world with half of my identity was amputated because there was this whole white side of my family that I knew didn't want anything to do with me. I knew nothing about them. And so it was very strange to go throughout life with this void where this is half of you, you know nothing about. And so with a lot of, I think, biracial kids of that era, there was a struggle to try to figure out where do you belong? Uh, when I grew up in the 70s, there, you know, there was no Obama, Kamala Harris, Jordan Peele. There were no biracial role models in public. So it was very lonely existence. So I was trying to figure out my place in the world. I'm in this all black neighborhood where everybody hates white people, but I know I have a white mom and, and I'm trying to figure out what my place in the world is. But I have to tell you, Byron, that as I got older, the biggest struggle I had was not so much between my identity as a biracial person or my experiences there. You know, being a, it was really my trying to figure out my place in the world. The biggest tug of war I felt was between my experiences as a son of this white mom and his black father and my experiences as a journalist covering all these huge racial upheavals in the country. You know, things like uh, the, the Rodney King uh, riots, Clarence Thomas, all these racial peoples, Ferguson, Charlottesville. It's like the lessons and experiences I learned as a black journalist conflicted the, with the experiences and lessons that I learned as this uh, son of a white mom and a black father. That was the biggest struggle, not like between white and black. It was between those two identities. Uh, when you say when you say that struggle in those two identities, um, in terms of uh, having an impact on how you saw these particular events, do you feel a need that you yeah. need to take sides or not no. need to take sides? But how, how I mean, how how did you wrestle with that? Say more, please. Here, here was the struggle was so as it I, I become a journalist and I write. I spend most of my time writing about race. And I'm covering all these racial reckonings that happened throughout our country's history. So I'm old enough to recover Clarence Thomas nomination hearing, for example, in the early 90s. And I'm covering this stuff year after year, all the way up to George Floyd. And I noticed this pattern where there's always this event, some kind of racial upheaval, something happens where racism becomes very raw and apparent to white America. And there's this brief moral outrage 
but then it fades as the news cycle moves on and then there's a return to the status quo. So with my identity as a journalist covering this, I begin to believe that white America will not change. Racism was always, will always be here. There will never be any kind of change because anytime there's any hint of promise, something happens and it returns to the status quo. So I was very cynical and jaded about this country and about racial progress. However, at the same time, I was becoming more cynical and jaded about this stuff. Things were happening with, to me in my private life as the son of this white mom and this black father, that, that things that were filling me with optimism and hope. And that is specifically, I began to meet my mom and these white members of my family who were very racist, but I saw them change in ways that I never expected. And I started going to these churches that were interracial and I started becoming friends with white people for the first time. So I began to realize as a, as a private person that what really changed me were those relationships. So what I say now is that I really believe this, that if you're gonna address racism, one of the things we have to understand is that facts don't change people, relationships do. Journalists, we build our careers around facts, but I've, I have found that there's a limit to facts that people can change though when you have these relationships with them under certain conditions. And those are the things that fill me with hope. So that was the struggle between those two identities. I don't know if that makes sense. Does that make sense to you? No, it makes it makes it makes quite a bit of sense. I, I um, was thinking about um, given what you wrote about in your professional life, um, especially doing some of this um, the racial upheaval that we had in this business last decade. Um, that you, I could see you in the newsroom being sort of a go-to person within the newsroom. John, what do you think about fill in the blank? And um, I I could see how one might grow weary of that. I mean, you saw George Floyd like I saw George Floyd. What do you think kind of thing? So, Yeah, yeah, it's exhausting. And but, and like I said, it's so easy to believe that racism is something that is just inerasable, that is just baked into the DNA of this country and it will never change. And so as a journalist, I got tired of writing these stories and I was looking for a story about race that would inspire me, that would give me hope that things can change, that people can change. And then I realized, wait a minute, I'm living such a story. I'm living that story with the white members of my family, with my mom and her relatives. And that was kind of a revelation to me. It was right in front of my face the whole time. So that's what I'm trying to explain. You know, what, what's more, and you sort of touched on this in the book, but I want to have you amplify it. And you touched on a little bit in our conversation here. But, you know, again, we are not talking about Berkeley, California, where I grew up. We're, we're talking about Baltimore uh, and the racial climate of the 70s is more bifurcated. You you self-identified as a closeted biracial person. You didn't want anybody black to know you had a white mother. So talk more, say more about that, if you would, just how that dynamic plays into your racial awakening. You, you mean the, the, the racial climate of West Baltimore? Yes, yes. Okay, so Baltimore is is considered the North. Uh, it's, it's like a half hour away from D.C., a little bit above D.C. And so there's this perception that racism is like hardcore racism is a southern problem, not a northern problem. But what I realized growing up in West Baltimore is that there's something what I call the Jim Crow North. 
that racism is just as vicious in the North and in places like Baltimore. It's just not as overt. So I grew up in an extremely racially segregated neighborhood. No white people came through my neighborhood except for police officers or authority figures. And during my entire time in uh, public school, from Head Start to high school graduation, I only saw one white student. And we looked at her like she was Bigfoot, like, what are you doing here? It was like weird. So it was this really racially segregated environment, but also the segregation was not like accidental. It was deliberate. Baltimore had the nation passed the nation's first racially restrictive housing covenant back in 1911, not Selma, Alabama, not Mississippi, but Baltimore. So it, it passed the first law saying that black and Jewish people couldn't move into certain white neighborhoods. Baltimore um, has a really uh, bad history with race. And I, I really absorbed that. And I saw that. And one of the things that I really learned about racism growing up in West Baltimore and also through my subsequent experience as a reporter covering race is I think people overestimate hatred when it comes to racism and underestimate indifference. What I mean by that is I found that the most destructive forms of racism was not so much the white person called you the N-word and want to attack you. It was the indifference of good white people who knew about the type of places that I grew up in, who knew about the, 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 you know, the dilapidated schools, the poverty, but they were different. It didn't matter to them because it wasn't their children. So that indifference to me is to me is the most like destructive part of racism. You know, John, when I was reading your book, I, I was thinking to myself, you know, John is really lucky to be here. I mean, given the the this the racial social climate of Baltimore that that, that you describe, mm -hmm. if your father was not a merchant marine that had this incredible uh, experience globally, um, if your mother, who who by by all means has a very racial basis family, if she didn't push against that, you don't get here. So it's really remarkable that we're even having this conversation. Yeah, that's a that's a great observation, because I've thought a lot about that. And you write a book, you discover things and you're talking about you talked about how my mom pushed against her family and my father was very unconventional. So, you know, one of the things I asked, I, I, I asked myself, like, like, you know, why should people care a story about it? biracial kid with a, you know, white mom and a black father, uh, you know, things are different now. And one of the things that I think is important about my parents' story, why it matters today, is because it shows me how people who seem like they have no power can really change things. And let me be more specific about that, because in journalism, I'm always writing about people who have power, like the, you know, Supreme Court, politicians, and there's this perception that these are the people that lead the country, that change things. But my parents' example shows something totally different. And what I mean by that is that when my parents met each other in the mid-60s, over 90% of Americans opposed interracial marriage. I don't know if you remember this, 1968, Harry Belafonte got in trouble when a white woman. Petula Clark. Yeah, Petula <laughs> Clark. So that was the environment that my mother and father traveled in. They, they, they knew that. They, they knew those dangers, but yet they walked in public with one another. They had two black sons, and they did that. And today, nobody thinks twice about interracial marriages or biracial couples. And I ask myself, how did that happen? And I think about something that this author I like, Eric Liu, 
said, he said, norms change before policy changes. What he meant is that when interracial marriage was illegal, there were all these other couples, like my, my father, my mother, who said the hell with that. Those laws about anti-miscegenation, those laws are absurd. I'm going to love who I'm going to love. And they started to date each other and they started to have children. And they created this ripple effect, this chain reaction to mother, other people start joining and they start doing it until the Supreme Court and the politicians had, had to decide that this is legitimate. So to me, my mother and my father helped create this world we live in now where interracial marriage is a norm and they did it. And they, they were people who didn't have that much power. And I saw that. And so that's what I think about to me when I think about my story, about what does biracial being biracial mean to me? I don't really think so much about, you know, whether I'm white or I'm black. Those kind of stories never really, you know, really spoke to me. But to me, when you to talk about the power that these people did in the mid 60s when it was illegal, when all these interracial couples did it nonetheless and they created that world, that's this biracial experience that really speaks to m- most to me. Now, your parents were together for three years, is that correct? Correct. Okay. And talk about um, when your father comes to the door for the first time to, to take your mom out. Yeah, he knocks on the door. First of all, that he, he got to the door was an accomplishment in itself because in those difficult days, um, he tried to take a cab from a black neighborhood into a white na- neighborhood in Baltimore, but the cab driver initially wouldn't take him. He had to kind of negotiate with them. And the guy dropped him off near my mom's house and then skedaddled as soon as my father stepped out of the cab. That's how dangerous it was. And then my father knocked on the door and my mother's father answered the door, called him to the N-word and physically assaulted him and had the police uh, call the police and they arrested him. And so that was my, my father's first experience trying to date my mom. And like, again, just the fact that she knew that and still went out with him was incredible. And he would tell me stories about they would walk in public. Police officers would stop and say, is this man bothering you, ma'am? People would stop their cars in the middle of the street, glare at them, then drive forward and turn back around and glare at them more. Cab drivers wouldn't pick them up. They went to a bar once and after they drank a glass, the bartender would take the glass that they had just used and break it in front of them. So that was the world that they moved in. You know, as you spoke earlier, the subtitle of your book, What a Black Man Discovered About the White Mother He Never Knew. This, in my view, is a classic example of the idiom, never judge a book by its cover, because there was much more than you, you, you not meeting your mother. You actually did meet your mother. Talk, talk, talk about that, if, if, if you would. Yeah, that was the meeting I had with my mom was uh, totally unexpected. And it was the beginning of, of, of a change in how I saw racism and race. So I'm 17 years old and I'm on my way to college. And at this point, I've never met my mom and I've resigned myself to not meeting her or anybody in her family. I think maybe she's not alive or whatever. And my father calls me to the room and he says, <laughs> He to his bedroom one day and he says, would you want to meet, do you want to meet your mom? And it was a bombshell. And three days later, I, along with my younger brother, we're driven to the outskirts of this uh, in Maryland, in countries out of Maryland. And we're driven to this very menacing looking red brick building. It looks like the set from the Shawshank Redemption. 
and we're guided into this waiting room and we still don't know where we are. And as we're waiting, we could hear people moaning and pain in the background, some like distant hallways, while others were just like breaking out into hysterical laughter and like, what, what is this place? And then a hospital orderly escorts a young, thin white woman into the room and she's wearing these baggy clothes like they're donated by Goodwill. And she looks at us and her eyes light up and she says, oh boy, John, oh boy, Pat, it's so good to see you. And she half walks, shuffles toward us and gives me a hug. And it's my mom. And I don't quite know what to do because I've never even used the word mom before. But part of the other reason why I feel so awkward is it really hits me right then and there where we are. We are in the waiting room of a mental institution. My mom had been confined there for much of her life because she suffered from a severe form of mental illness called schizophrenia. No one told us, even on the very day until when we got out there, no one told us this was our mom's condition. We didn't make that discovery until we saw her in the waiting room. Now, what else is also significant about that, besides just the shock of meeting my mom like that, is that in the world I grew up in, you know, I, I, felt that, I felt that no white person could understand what it meant to be poor, to be black, to be looked down on with contempt. Now, when I went out to see my mom, the place where she stood and stayed at was a notorious mental institution called Crownsville. They used to subject uh, patients to medical experiments, chain them to the bed. I didn't know that when I saw her there, but I could feel the misery in that place. And when I saw her, I remember thinking, I didn't know a white person could suffer like that. This is the first time in my life I felt empathy, not hatred toward a white person. And that happened with my mom. She didn't have to say a word, but then that just happened within 15 minutes of meeting. So that began to shift my racial attitudes toward white people just from that meeting. So that's significance of that first meeting to me. So as, as I understand your story correctly, I mean, aside from, would you like to meet your mom? You really, you and your brother had no really were given any prep or anything, what mm. to expect or anything. You had no, absolutely no idea um, what what this journey was going to unfold. No, and, and part of it is back when I met my mom in, uh, 19, in the early 1980s, people didn't know how to talk about mental illness. My father and his family didn't know how to tell us. People didn't talk about it openly. You think race is difficult to talk about openly, then add to that mental illness, and they just didn't know how to do it. It wasn't, I think in retrospect, it would seem like they were just being insensitive, but I think part of it is they were at a loss. They were afraid. They didn't know how to talk about it. So we were just dumped into it, into this situation, and it was just very difficult because, you know, I, I met my mom, and like any son, I would want her to, you know, be somebody that would look out for me, somebody I could talk about my experiences. I was very frustrated in the beginning because I couldn't have the type of relationship that I wanted with her. In a sense, when I met her, I immediately became a caretaker, her caretaker. So, yeah, it was a, it was a very difficult initial meeting. But yet, as I got to know my mom year after year, that relationship turned out to be a huge blessing for me. You know, one of the things and one, one, one of the things I love about books is you, the author, you have no control over how the reader will take certain things. Mm 
Yeah, that's for sure. <laughs> one of my takeaways from your text is that I thought one of the real stars of the book is your father's family because they become sort of this release valve. Like, um, as I understood it, 180 degrees from your mother's family. Talk about that interaction, if you would, and how your mother interacted with your father's family. Yeah, um, so people sometimes ask me, like, what happened to you? Like, how did you turn out to be more or less normal? Because I spent most of my time as a kid in foster homes. My father was overseas like eight months out of the year, didn't know my mom, her family, didn't know anything about them. So the question becomes like, well, how did you turn out okay? And how did your younger brother turn out okay? And the answer is what you just alluded to, Byron, um, my father's family. I had one person in particular from my father's family that really helped me. And she was my aunt, my aunt Sylvia. She was my uh, father's younger sister. And I would stay with her on the weekend. So she became like the surrogate mom to me. And I, I described her as this. She was like, she was like my lighthouse in a sea of chaos. She was that source of stability. She was the one that took me to school, took me to the doctor, took me to church. She was the one who really gave me that maternal affection and that belief in myself that really made a difference. So what I try to tell people, they say, oh, you turned out okay. And I think of uh, this, uh, this uh, statement from a psychologist I like, uh, a guy named Gordon Allport, who I talk a lot about in my book. He said that love received and love given is the best form of therapy. And that was really good therapy for me to have somebody like my father's sister, my aunt Sylvia, to really step in and to be that, that rock for me. But John, uh, you had in your, in, I'm talking about your little mind, your young person mind. I mean, you had this image of a mother that you had never met. And then you meet her. So now you've got to do some renegotiation. Talk about that, because that just couldn't be easy. And I can attest that you are you are normal. You're reasonably normal, having, having had you on several times. But that withstanding, that required some renegotiation, some things you assumed versus the reality you were met with when you once when you finally met your mother. Yeah, yeah, because uh, one of the big challenges for anyone who is close to someone who has a mental illness, particularly a severe form of mental illness, is that you have to see beyond their illness. You have to see the person. And sometimes it's difficult because the illness can be so so, so overt, so, so obvious, it can get in the way. And so to answer your question, when I first met my mom, all I could see was the illness. All I could see was what she couldn't give me. It took me years to see beyond the, beyond the illness and to see how much she had already given me and was still giving me. And what I mean specifically about that is that I heard the stories about how my mom was a real courageous person, how she would speak up against people who would try to attack my father, how she felt so comfortable around black people, how she cared so much about racial justice. Well, as I got to know her year after year, I began to see that that person was still there. I could still see it. It just took me a while to see it. So I think that was one of the, the biggest challenges to see beyond the illness. And what I discovered is that it was this weird dynamic. Whereas when I was a kid, 
I was ashamed that my mom was white. And then when I was a young man, I was ashamed that she had a mental illness. But then as an older man, for the first time, I felt pride, pride that I am the son of this really incredible woman who was really a white woman who was really willing to stand against her family and her community, identify with Black people, and to really care so much about racial justice. And like, I'm proud to be the, the son of, of such a woman. So that was a, a long journey. A lot of things had to happen for me to get to that place. Once you met your mother, did, um, how helpful was your father in filling in some blanks? I'm sure you had more questions than you had answers after meeting her. So was your father helpful? Or was he able to help you fill in some of the blanks? He was able to help me a little bit, but my father, it was limited because my father was not an introspective person. He was a he was a rough merchant seaman who loved to drink and hit the bars and get in fights in public. And and uh, he, he was a he was a he was a rabble rouser type of guy. He was not some type of person to talk about his feelings or to to uh, to get introspective about race. He just wasn't that type of person to help me understand my mom. The person who really helped me understand my mom was my mom's sister. And this was the person I had a really difficult relationship with in the beginning. This is uh, my mother's sister, Aunt Mary. But she is, to me, one of the, the most important characters in the book, because Aunt Mary was somebody who showed me something I didn't really believe as a journalist. And that is that white people who struggle with racism can change, because when I met her, she was a stone cold racist. And now she's something totally different. But she was the one who helped me understand my mom. As I got to know her, she would tell me the stories about what my mom was like as a kid, as a young woman. She would send me the pictures. She she knew my mom better than anybody. She could she told my she told me about what it was like to see my mom struggle with this mental illness until it really engulfed her. So it was really my mom's sister who really helped me understand my mom. Well, that's going to be my next question, and that's a perfect segue. Talk about that meeting, because yeah. obviously it wasn't enough. You met your mother. Now I need to meet this other part of this family, yeah. this other gap. Talk about that initial, those initial meetings and how that came about. So keep in mind, I'm, by the time I meet my mother's sister, I'm in my mid-20s, and I had been writing about race for a while. And I'd already seen at that young point in my career the pattern of how so many white Americans were in denial about racism. And so what happens when I meet her in my mid twenties, she asked to meet me and my younger brother, Patrick. And I didn't wanna meet her because I'm like, why do you wanna meet us now? You weren't there for us when we needed you as a kid. But let, let me meet her, I, I decided, because maybe she wants to apologize for her absence from my life and for her racism. And so when we meet, she extends her hand to, to you know, shake my hand. And I didn't even want to shake her hand. It was just like real dramatic pause. But I did shake her hand and I got to know her. And I kept on waiting for her to say, okay, I met you and I wanted to meet you to apologize. And it never came. She never apologized. She seemed like she had nothing to apologize for. So one day I asked her, why didn't you reach out to us when we were younger? And she said, uh, and I said, was it because we're Black? And she said, no, it's not because you or your father's black. Race had nothing to do with it. It's because you aren't Catholic. That was the reason I didn't reach out to you. And that even made me angrier because I thought she was in denial. 
And, you know, my mom is just really comes from this really devout Irish Catholic family. So that made me angrier. But then that same person who denied that, that same person became this other person today who is like, can't stand Trump, loves John Lewis, always sends me messages about the civil rights movement, sends me books like The Killing Meikenberg, um, asked me to send her books like on white fragility and all that. She's totally changed. I mean, she's changed in a really profound way. And I have a great relationship with her. And that to me is one of the most hopeful parts of the book because I, 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 I've, I really believe this. I feel like so many Americans now believe that racism is embedded in our DNA, that we can't get rid of it, that people don't really change. But when I look at my aunt and look at other members of my family, like, no, even the people you think are the most hardened racist, they can change. Going back to you have no control on how readers read your mm -hmm. words, <laughs> going back to that theme, former President Barack Obama self-identifies as a black man, though he is biracial, as do you, based on your title. How do you feel, given your biracial heritage, when you hear someone say, like they said about President Obama, why doesn't uh, uh, Obama self-identify with the white side of his family? And I thought about this uh, when I was reading your memoir and, and, and whether such statements invoke any particular feelings for you. When people ask, why don't you identify with the white side? Yeah, yeah, like you put black man on the title. Well, you're, you're, I'm, I'm not saying this, but I'm just being hyper, you know. Well, yeah, you're, I mean, you're not just a black man. How can we don't acknowledge the white side? I mean, I'm like, you hear that about President Obama a lot. I mean, do those types of statements invoke any particular feelings for you? Yeah, I, I think about it a lot. I think, first of all, I think having Obama, a biracial man as president, was one of the most helpful, healing uh, uh, it was so helpful for so many biracial people to see that, to see that he was so eloquent in, 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 in talking about his identity. And because for so long, I think biracial people have been seen as people who are confused, who don't really belong anywhere. I think, frankly, a lot of Black people have felt like biracial people that their loyalties are suspect? Are they really one of us? Do they really identify with white people more? And Obama showed on a very public stage, he was none of that. And I think that was very good. But the more specific about me, I remember my father telling me that one day, I told him, you know, don't call me biracial, call me black. And he says, when you do that, you deny your mom. And that really stuck with me. And I don't wanna make her angry. So I, I, I do tell people I'm biracial. And that is for me, that is acknowledging my mom. That is part of me. But I do identify as Black because, as I tell people, if I'm stopped at 1 o'clock in the morning by a state trooper, they don't see a biracial man. They see a Black man. You know, look at the way Obama was treated in office. You think <laughs> the Tea Party and all those racist memes, you think they saw him as a, as a biracial man? They see him as Black. So I think part of it is, is an acknowledgement of how this country defines race, how you're seen. You're seen as Black. Culturally, I'm black. That's the experience I grew up with. I grew up in this all black neighborhood, this all black family. I, I was shaped by the black church, black heroes. So I'll also identify as black for that reason. But finally, you know, to try to answer your question, the way this being biracial makes me think about race is that I think ultimately we have to get past race. I mean, the whole idea of race on a certain level is absurd. 
that you classify people by their skin pigmentation as white, black, whatever. Scientifically, there's no basis for race. So I think that ultimately we're going to have to get beyond race and just like stop classifying people as race. And some people say that'll never happen, but I think eventually it will have to happen if we're going to have to deal with racism. You know, you know it's, it's, it's interesting that you say that because I'm, th- I'm thinking now about the marketing of the book. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You know, and how a black man never knew his white mother. Okay, now, you know, we, we, we read that, we grab that. How a biracial man never knew about his mother with mental health challenges. I don't know if that sells the same way. And, and this story, to me, is as much about mental health and a critique on the institutions in addition to a sort of a coming of age story and you meeting your mother, I, I think mental health plays a really big role, but I guess we don't have the maturity to, to embrace it in the same way as when you lead with race. Yeah, it's a, yeah, it's a very good observation. It is a lot about mental health. It's also a lot about faith. It's also, uh, there's some other elements to it that are that people will find very hard to believe that are frankly, I don't know what you want to call it, paranormal, whatever. But, you know, it's hard to put that in, in, in the subtitle. There are all these layers. But if, if I could sum up a, like a kind of like a, you know, a kind of an essential thought that binds all these things together in the book, I would use the word empathy. So much of the story is about me really learning how to... <sighs> connect with people that I thought I could never connect with because of different reasons, whether it was a mental illness, whether it was their race or class, um, but just finding that I could find common ground with them. And, and, and that, that was really important to me. And, you know, you talk about the marketing of race. What I'm finding in the book is that white Americans love this book a lot more than black folks. And I've been really like troubled by that. And I've been thinking about it. And I think part of it is, is that when we typically write about race as a, as, a, as a black man, particularly writing about from the neighborhood that I grew up in, there's a kind of a hopelessness and a kind of despair in the stories we write about race. And my story is not like that. There's tremendous hope. There's people changing and there's optimism. And I almost feel like for some people, they don't know what to do with a story from a black man that has some optimism, that has some hope. Like, is that really black? I don't know. We can, you know, what do we do with that? So it's really strange how people react to it. Well, again, having read the book, um, my take was even definitely there's some hope, but there's also something that we just don't use in the in the culture very much. Is that I think you did an excellent job of nuancing things. You know, yeah. it's it's not just my father's black, my mother's white. You, you know, my parent, my father, my father's family was black. My mother's family was white. You give these people, the people you talk about, you give them multi dimensions. And so, you know, so just being a black man was one aspect of your father. I mean, he was this world traveler. You know, I mean, your, I mean, so you give multi dimensions. So the, the fact that there's nuance to your book, I think to me, that's what really stood out to me. Uh, well, thank you, Byron. That's a huge compliment because I think, frankly, a lot of that nuance is is missing from a lot of stories we write up. We write about race. 
I mean, for example, I I write about some of the racism I experienced from black folks growing up in West Baltimore. But um, but I also and I thought this is really important. I didn't want to write a story that implies if just white and black people just hug one another, and became friends, racism would disappear. I talked a lot about structural racism in Baltimore and other places, how that really affected my life. And so, you know, I, I try to put that kind of nuance through, but I also wanted to show nuance in another way. Um, when sometimes I see a lot of people write about race and they write about white people who are captured by racism, they reduce them to like these uh, one dimensional characters who, who can't change. But, you know, and I used to see that myself. I used to think, you know, you're either racist or you're not. But there's this whole area in between for a lot of white people where, yes, they're racist, but there are other things, too. And that's what I saw in my white family members. It took me a long time to accept that and deal with that, that the same people who could do incredibly racist, cruel things were also capable of growth, also of changing into something else. That was really difficult for me to accept, but it happened. And I don't really see a lot of that kind of nuance in the ways we write about race, too. And but you're 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 living growing up rather in this really the way you depicted and the way I took it this really narrow slice in that in using your own words uh, within West Baltimore you 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 were closeted. Mm-hmm. Um, there's another side of your family, your mother's side of family you don't even know. You have all of these questions about your mother that never get answered. Just you have a first name and her race. That's a lot for for anybody just to carry around, let alone a young person just trying to figure out who the heck they are. That's a lot to carry around. Yeah, it was. And I, I think one of the things that helped me later on to deal with all those questions and, and all that anger that was boiling up in me, uh, I talked a lot about faith in the book. Um, One of the things that really helped me is that when I was in college, I joined this church that just happened to be really at the forefront of racial reconciliation, which is kind of an overused term now, but they were really big about dealing with racism and getting white and black and brown people together, which is even more unusual in the 80s when I joined the church. But I remember going in that church and seeing white and black, brown people hug one another, call each other brother and sister, see each other outside of Sunday, become friends, go to the movies, have pizza together, get married. And I had never seen that before. And but that 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 really helped me being in that kind of community. And so that helped deal with a lot of that. Those, those questions you talked about I had as a childhood, that's a lot of st- stuff for a kid to deal with, all those heavy questions about identity, race, loss. But joining that church really helped me. And I say that not because I'm trying to convert people. I say, if you could join any community where you're forced to be around people who are different, where you can start seeing your common humanity, whether it's a church, whether it's a 12-step program, whether it's an athletic team, whether it's a jazz band, whether it's a bingo club, whatever it is, that will really help you. It's very therapeutic. And that was also part of my experience. Uh, my next question is one that I ask all book authors when they come on the show. Uh, when I'm writing a book, 
I obviously think there's something there or what would be the point of writing it? Uh, but invariably, there's a moment as whether I'm doing the research or I'm writing or self-reflection where it becomes what I call the eureka moment, like this is it. Um, have you experienced anything like that when you were writing this text where you just, you know, you start the project and all of a sudden it crystallizes, this is what I'm trying to do here. I got it. Yeah, that's a good question. I mean, there were a lot of eureka moments because so much of the story went into directions I did not plan, I did not expect. And I think that's actually a good sign uh, because I, I was making discoveries as I was writing it. I've heard people tell me who read the book that they say it reads like a movie. They read it in one setting or two setting or two settings, like it moves real quick. You want to know what happens next. And if that's true, and I hope it is, part of the reason is I felt that way. In some ways, I didn't know what was going to happen next, even though it was my story, because I was making all these discoveries. And there were a lot of eureka moments. And for me, one of the biggest eureka moments came at the very end. And I don't want to say too much, give away the scene, but it was a moment when I'm in the presence of my mom and all the shame that I felt over the years, over her being white, one, over her having this mental illness evaporated. And for the first time I saw her clearly and I begin to see, wow, what an amazing woman she is. And that was that first moment I really felt pride in her. And that was a eureka moment for me because it, it, it just took a long time for me to see past her illness and to see her for that brave young, young woman she was who defined her family, who defined her community, who, de who was so much, she was so much different than what most white Americans were at that time. So that was a great eureka moment for me. The title of the book, More Than I Imagined, What a Black Man Discovered About the White Mother He Never Knew. Our guest this, for this hour has been its author, CNN senior writer, John Blake. John, thank you so much uh, for joining us once again, the public rally. Well, thank you, Byron, for your great questions and for having me on again. And thank you for the work you do. It's so important. The Public Morality welcomes your comments. You can contact me at Byron at publicmorality.org. That's Byron, B-Y-R-O-N, at publicmorality.org. You can follow me on Facebook as well as Twitter. The archive broadcast can be found on iTunes, Spotify, Amazon Prime, SoundCloud, or wherever you listen to your podcasts. Those listening to the Public Rally on WSNC can also listen on a tap. Using your mobile device, simply go to your application page, search WSNC 90.5, and click open to listen from anywhere. The Public Morality is produced at WSNC on the campus of Winston-Salem State University. For all of us at the Public Morality, I'm Byron Williams.